News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, with this warm, dry fall we're having, we are setting temperature records, the likes of which we've never seen before here. And that is really the impact of the changing climate. And we're seeing that right across the country, right? All over the world, really. We had the heat dome, you know, that settled over BC. Uh, We've got Hurricane Fiona over on the coast, a storm, the likes of which they hadn't seen over there ever before. And so there's no easy way out of it, but there is a discussion now about... We need to talk about the financial value of natural assets and maybe that'll help you know, us to take these things more seriously. So what does that mean? Well, Roy Brooke is with us now, the Executive Director of the Municipal Natural Assets Initiative. Roy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So what does it mean to say we need to put uh, a financial value on nature? Uh, well, I think you set up the, uh, the discussion really well. Nature provides us with all of the services that, uh, that we need to survive, not just the obvious ones like food, but drinking water, stormwater management, uh, absorbing carbon dioxide. And uh, we, we need to be seized with it. We need to protect it and rehabilitate it if we want to uh, have a livable future. But there's a number of barriers to this. And one of the barriers that faces uh, public sector entities is that you cannot consider natural assets like forests or uh, rivers to be real assets for accounting purposes. And that leads us to really, we're still taking a decision on the value of nature, but de facto, we're valuing it at, at zero. And so the report we put out really is making the case that these accounting rules are, are something that need to change. It's not going to solve all of our issues, but it's going to really help entities like local governments to start treating nature more seriously for the full suite of services and benefits that it provides. Okay, so what does it change then? If we say this goes from having zero value to X amount of dollars, what does that mean for us? So if, if, we ch- if the accounting rules changed tomorrow and we said that uh, nature, natural assets are capital assets, it means that across Canada, in every village, in every town, in every city, people would have to be, uh, mayors, uh, staff would have to be thinking, what are the natural assets that I own? What are the natural assets that I rely upon? What condition are they in? What risks do they face? If they started to fail, would I be able to cover the costs uh, of replacing them with an engineered uh, alternative? Would my taxpayers be willing to, to, um, uh, to, to cover that? So it forces us to take na- nature seriously to understand and act on the full suite of values that it provides. Right. Okay. Do you see any progress being made on that front then, Roy? Definitely there, there is some. So the rules in this country are being set by the for public sector accounting, are being set by something called the Public Sector Accounting Board. And this issue is definitely one that they are looking at um, and, and considering. I think the real question is whether the change is coming. I, I think the real question is, whether or not it will be soon enough, whether it will be 
fast enough to protect uh, the natural assets that are providing us with these vital services. Um, and um, also whether Canada seizes a bit of a leadership role, change is also happening in accounting rules beyond Canada. So it really, the question is, are, are we going to take a leadership role soon enough mm-hmm. or are we going to be sort of bullied into it by um, action elsewhere? Hmm. Interesting. Roy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. Yeah, you're talking about the uh, pink bugs. I live in the Chimney Hill area behind uh, Guilford Golf Course. Um, we have tons and tons of them. Every day I have one or two in my kitchen off my sun deck because we leave our doors open and they're all over. Thank you for that call to our buzz line, 604-331-2899. I also had a bunch of emails from people in the Guilford area saying it was really bad there. So there must be a particular infestation right there. Now, the first time I saw one was earlier this year. Honestly, I was horrified the first time I saw it because I thought, what is that? But now I see them all the time in my house. I probably have killed two of them just in the last week or so. They are out there. What is the deal with so many stink bugs right now? Well, joining us now is Gail Wallen, Executive Director of Invasive Species of BC. Gail, thanks for being with us. Uh, Thanks for having us. Gail, what is going on with these stink bugs? Uh, This is a time of year when people should normally start seeing more of them. So the brown marmoted stink bug is actually an invasive species. It's only been here in the lower mainland Fraser Valley area for about five, six years. Um, But at this time of the year, they usually start looking for that warm place to overwinter. And we actually are having such a warm fall. I think we're seeing more of them this year than we normally do because they're around. And we're probably more outside and around than this year, just like the stink bugs. So, yes, they're there. They're invasive. We don't want them. But they've arrived into Fraser Valley and the Cologne area. And there's a few on uh, uh, probably into the Surrey area, like you mentioned. But our big job now is making sure we don't move them. Okay, how do we do that? They are great hitchhikers. I mean, they probably got here by hitchhiking on whether it was a container ship or coming up from the States. Um, we have to be really careful that when you leave your home in Surrey or Chilliwack, that when you drive up to see some of us in the Caribou, don't bring them with you. <laughs> bring, your, bring yourself, but make sure that you're not transporting any invasive species or insects with you because then you'll be transporting them to a new environment okay so and how that's do we not wise yeah how do we do that then make sure that we're not traveling with them well you need, you need to be observant i mean these are a very distinct stink bug you can see it like you, you've noticed so before you take off make sure on your outdoor equipment if you're bringing me up a chair i live in williams lake make sure it hasn't got any insects attached to it this isn't the only one that will hitchhike but many of our invasive insects are moved through uh, transportation by us moving them around. So you need to be observant. Uh, you need to be observant to make sure that you're not moving it. And then if you see it in a new area, report it into us. Those are the two things that we can really make a difference on. I would say that like in my neighborhood, you know, which is kind of the Kitsilano area, it's new. This is the first year I have ever seen them there before. Are you getting more reports like that? This year, um, the northern giant hornet has actually been trumped by the brown marmorated stink bug for a number of reports. It is gathering people's attention, and it's probably because it's right now there's more of them out around your homes than ever. Um, and we, we still want people to be aware and alert because we want to know if the its region is expanding. We know they're in the Fraser Valley. We know they're in the Kelowna area. But when they're out of that area, we do want people to report. We've got... Uh, 
bcinvasives.ca. You can report them in through there if they're from a new area. In the areas that we know they're established, make sure you don't move them and make sure you're not uh, breeding them in your house. So capture them just like you did. Um, extinguish them. Um, there's no sense leaving them breed. Okay, so I shouldn't feel bad about killing this particular type of stink bug. Well, you should know that it's not native to British Columbia. It doesn't belong here, and it actually impacts not only our native plants and insects, but also really has a heavy impact on our food supply or fruit trees. It attacks 100, over 100 different species of trees and fruits. And so, therefore, if you're removing some of them from that population, then you might be protecting more of your apple crop or, or vegetable crop, et cetera. I like the nice way that you put it, if we are removing some of them from the population. <laughs> exactly. Well, they have a huge impact on our fruit crops. That's the biggest uh, uh, impact to us as individuals, never mind that they're also upsetting our uh, our ecosystems. Yeah, and they are huge. So which particular type of stink bug are we talking about here, Gail? The one that is invasive is the brown marmorated stink bug and it and it's a really distinctive looking stink bug we have some native ones but this one has got a very brown spotted shield um, shape and it's got long antenna yes. like stink bug does and if you look closely take you're going to find some white bands on the last two antenna segments and you're also going to see some white markings on its abdomen. But so you need to take a, a close look. Most likely right now, you're not going to, you, this is the one that you're seeing because it's so prolific. If oh, you go that's to our the website, bcnvasive.ca, you can see ones that they, ones you don't want to confuse it with. But this is so distinct, you'll be able to identify it fairly quickly. Oh, yeah. As soon as I saw the picture, I was like, oh, yeah, that is definitely the one that I have been seeing. <laughs> so will we will we find more of them indoors these days, do you think, because they are looking to come in from that warmer weather outside when it gets cool at night? That's exactly. Normally in the fall is when we start to see more of them because they're starting to move that warm temperatures. Your house is nice and warm. Um, you're starting to attract it right now. I mean, we have, I mean, I, we're seeing and hearing about so many. And I think the warm fall has got to be a factor in that. I've talked to some of the entomologists that are experts in this area and they're saying they don't think the population is up, but they think our reporting and awareness is up and the number of uh, stink bugs that are in our homes is up. So that, that all right. aligns up. Um, so we need to be aware, need to be re, uh, making sure we don't move them. And if it's, you're in a new area, report it into bcinvasives.ca. Uh, we encourage people to report what they're finding outdoors and the iSpy uh, Identify, uh, which is on the iNaturalist app. It's all free. It helps you identify everything. It's a great way to get involved. So join us on uh, tracking what we've got in our outdoors. Okay, it sounds fascinating because I look on your website too. I am fascinated. It's just a great like resource to find all that stuff. So is it very easy? You go on there to your website and then just report like where you live and, and what you saw. Exactly. So go into bcinvasives.ca. There's a re report button. You can taking a picture when you can is always useful because we. Have, what you think is easy to identify, many other people may misidentify. So take a picture, send it in to us, and then we can actually send that information over to the experts and make sure that its map of its distribution area is, is fully informed. All right. Sounds good. Gail, thank you so much for that. Okay, no problem. Don't move them around the province. Don't move them around. We got it. That is Gail Wallen, Executive Director of Invasive Species of BC. I think that's the most important part about that message she said there. Don't move them around the province. So if you are going to be going camping or traveling or going to just anywhere, essentially, 
check to make sure any of the equipment that you're taking with you does not have any of these brown marmorated stink bugs on it. So for instance, um, Alan wrote me this morning and sent me a picture. And this picture is, when you look at it, you just go, ooh. He said, we were airing out my son's hockey jersey bag overnight outside and found close to 30 of them, he said, in and outside of it. I'm assuming he said that the black, you know, the hockey bag attracted the heat that they like. And as well, they're sneaking into the house. Alan, the picture you sent me of them all crawling all over that bag, that's gross. Um, straight up, that is gross. So you heard what Gail said there. Make sure you check that kind of equipment, brush it all off, especially if you've had it outside. Do not carry those brown marmorated stink bugs to another part of the lower mainland. This is Mornings with Simi. So how is your parking karma these days? I mean, parking can be one of the most frustrating things about going out somewhere, whether you want to eat or you're shopping or whatever the case may be. Now, we always have regulations about, you know, if you're going to build something, you have to have X number of parking spots to go with that. But that actually might be changing. And when you look at what happened during the pandemic, well, that's possibly one of the reasons why. So we wanted to talk more about this. So joining us now is Brent Totteran, city planner, urbanist at Totteran, Todd Urban Works, former Vancouver chief planner. Brent, thanks for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. So what is changing when it comes to the idea of parking? Well, if we're talking about sustainability, affordability, or just geometry in cities, we I think a lot of cities have realized how much space we've been giving to cars specifically and gi- giving to storing cars specifically. And the worst case scenario is if that parking is surface parking, because, you know, there are downtowns in Canada where there's almost more surface parking than there are buildings in the downtown. So, And it's a real sign of failure where there isn't a lot of it. Uh, uh, economic uh, interest in building something, whether it's affordable housing or public spaces or what have you. So so if you're going to have parking downtown, it's best that it's underground parking and you've got a building on top. So you're making best use of that space and creating, helping create a vibrant downtown. So it's surface parking in particular that cities have been trying to address. But at the same time, because of sustainability and affordability, we're actually trying to build less parking, period. We're trying to need best par- less parking, period, by making sure that walking, biking, and public transit are as attractive as possible. Because we know that the, the most space extensive and the most public cost extensive way of getting people into the city, into downtown, is by car. If we can if we can attract more people walking, biking and public transit, it just leaves more room for everything else. Okay, is that the case, though? Because we we hope that by eliminating parking spots, people will walk more, they will bike more. But do we know that that actually happens? Well, in the successful cities, certainly Vancouver is the poster child of this. We have more economic activity uh, through walking, biking, and public transit than we do by car by far. And there's been studies that have been done in very urban cities like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, that show that uh, downtown retailers always overassume how many, uh, or by the way, Main Street retailers like, like Commercial Drive, for example, always overassume how many customers come by car and underassume how many customers come by walking, biking, and transit. So we know that's the case. The challenge is in the cities that aren't as urban, the cities that have been struggling, the Winnipegs and the Reginas of Canada. But in, in Vancouver, in cities like Vancouver, we know that, that we've been successful in getting people to the downtown and to our commercial streets, our main streets, by walking, public, driving, uh, walking uh, biking, and public transit. But 
the pandemic was an interesting shock to the system. And, and we're still coming out of that. And we're still observing what this means for urban places. Because during the pandemic, people did drive more. But now it's sort of turning back and we're trying to figure out what the new, the, the new normal, the next normal is. Okay, well, what is the balance then? How do we find that? Well, to be clear, we're not trying to find a balance. Uh, we're actually, because there are constant, there are much more significant costs and consequences when people have to, or, or just choose to excessively drive to everything in our cities. It, for one thing, it just takes up too much space. And that's what, that's what we see in cities that have over provided for parking. So what cities are trying to do is, uh, get out of the way of, of, of developers and builders and housing providers and affordable housing projects to, to build excessive parking. And that's why cities like Edmonton and the city I advise in, in Ontario, Kingston, uh, many Canadian, many North American cities are getting rid of what are, what are called parking minimums. In other words, if a heritage project, if an affordable housing project wants to build less parking, or a market housing project wants to build less parking because that's the market they're going for, car-free households, then the city won't force them to build excessive right. parking. So, so this, this, there's a recognition that many cities have been overbuilding for parking, ironically, because the city's been forcing them to. So cities have been reconsidering this concept of the parking minimum and letting projects on a case-by-case figure out how much parking they think they need for the purposes of what they're trying to achieve. And that's particularly right. important for things like affordable housing projects, heritage projects, et cetera. So this sounds like, okay, we're going to let the market decide. And, and it reminds me, it sounds like very much what they're going to be doing at Sanok on the Squamish nation lands. Well, yes. And, and it, it, I almost don't like the term market decide because it's, it's, you know, often, you know, that's code for developers doing whatever they want. And I'm not a big fan of that. But what what it has what we have seen in city after city is that it's very hard for any city to predetermine how much parking a project needs because you just have change over time. But the parking that you build is permanent and the parking has consequences for the climate change, because when you build excess parking, not only are you inducing more car ownership and more driving, but it's a, there's a massive carbon footprint to just building the parking in the first place. So it and it's always been a bit of a pseudoscience. Cities have never really had a lot of uh, scientific leg to stand on when they determine how much parking that a, a project should have. And we've kind of, for the first time, admitted that 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 there's that the emperor really has had no clothes in those parking minimums in the first place. So rather than saying the the market figures out it, it out, what I say is that pragmatism in the context of the building context where it is relative to public transit, whether it's in a walkable neighborhood, mm-hmm. you can figure those things out and determine what uh, will make a successful project. And, and, and most developers actually don't want to build less parking. I have to say this. Uh, there, a lot of developers still want to overprovide for parking, either because they think it's necessary or because their tenants, like a grocery store, think it's necessary. And that would still be allowed if you get rid of parking minimums. Right. But at least the city isn't forcing projects to overbuild for parking, which is what cities have been doing uh, for many, many decades. Interesting. Brent, thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. That's Brent Totter and city planner, urbanist, and former Vancouver chief planner talking about the issue of parking. Do you think you drive less? Do you need that car less now than you did, say, two years ago or even before the pandemic? Let me know. Send me at cknw.com. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Municipal Election Day is five days away. And right across BC and Metro Vancouver, there's been a real similarity, I think, with the issues. Housing, affordability, the pace of development, and of course, public safety. So this week, we turn our attention to the mayoral race in Surrey, and we are focusing on that issue of public safety. In Surrey, these issues have been in the forefront for years. We're talking about, you know, replacing the Surrey RCMP with a municipal police force. That was a huge promise in the election of 2018. Having enough officers, getting it up and running, whether it even should be up and running. All of that, once again, front and centre in 2022. And most importantly, will this make a difference in the community? Will people be safer or feel safer as a result? So we've been talking with the major mayoral candidates in Surrey this week. This morning, we turn our attention to our next guest on this front. We're speaking with Brenda Locke, Surrey mayoral candidate for Surrey Connect. Thank you very much for being here this morning. Good morning, Simi. What are residents telling you about their public safety concerns? You know, they are telling us a lot about uh, their concerns around public safety. There's very specifically wanting to keep the RCMP uh, as a police of jurisdiction in Surrey, and we hear that every day. So four years ago, you ran with Doug McCallum's party. There was obviously the break on that. What to you changed? What made you leave and decide you were going to do things differently now? We're never, we never did the due diligence to get there. We never did the feasibility studies, the impact studies. We didn't even know how it was going to move forward. And certainly uh, any thinking person would know with such a large transitional change, you do all those, all those pieces. The, the due diligence in this case was never done. And so we've ended up with this colossal mess at the end. But at the end of the day, the one thing we do know is the RCMP have remained steadfast, professional, and unfortunately, the other uh, SPS has not been able to get up to speed at all. And so um, we must uh, stay with the RCMP for all the good reasons, not the least of which is the incredible cost uh, that will come with with the transition. So what would you do then? You would cancel the transition to the Surrey Police Service? Absolutely. Stop it immediately. It's been nothing but a a waste of time, a waste of money, and worse, it has destabilized policing in our city, but not only in our city, in all of Metro Vancouver. And I have talked with many other mayors that have uh, local police or municipal police, as well as some officers on the ground. And this is just destabilizing policing because they are poaching officers from West Vancouver, from New Westminster, any any place they can. And so it's, it's just not working out the way it was intended to. And uh, it doesn't look like they can get off the ground. They have four, They have had four years to try. They were supposed to be fully operational by April 1st, 2021, and they failed. It's time to move on. It's time to use best practices, and that's what the RCMP is doing. Okay, so what would that cost, though? If you want to stay with the RCMP, one of the big issues with having the RCMP in Surrey to begin with was that anytime you wanted to increase the number of officers, you had to go you know, through RCMP headquarters for that. It became very challenging to have control over policing. How do you how do you fix that issue? You know, um, local government, first of all, should never have control 
over-policing, but I would say it's difficult to hire uh, police officers no matter who they are. So yes, it's difficult to get policing complement, um, RCMP policing complement into Surrey, but I, I can tell you it's much easier to get RCMP into Surrey than it is to hire police officers. We know today that has been demonstrated in spades with the trans, uh, with the attempt to transition to Surrey Police Service. And we also know, uh, just looking around, not only um, Surrey and other cities in British Columbia, right across the country, you cannot hire police officers without a lot of work and uh, extraordinary salaries and, um, and top-ups to get them there. So what happens to the officers that have already been hired by the Surrey Police Service? You know, one thing I will say is every single officer is is important to us. And whether they're Surrey Police Service members or they're RCMP, um, they're doing a really difficult job. They run into danger when we're running out. So they're important to us. They will be, um, there will be opportunity for every one of them. So there is an ability to ladder uh, through the RCMP's own program if they choose to do that. They can work out their um, their current uh, situation with the Surrey Police Service and, and work it out at Surrey, or they can go back to their original um, place of hire or they can go somewhere else. I can tell you there is no end of opportunity for police officers. So I'm I'm... I'm not concerned about their employment status, that's for sure. Aren't you concerned, though, about the number of officers this would leave Surrey with if a number of them do choose to go back to their other jobs or go to a different police force? Surrey is still short a number of officers, even if you are transitioning back to the RCMP. So how do you propose to change that? Right. So we will be um, we will be working with the RCMP, and I have been in dust discussion with them to um, get more officers into Surrey right away. But remember that we have far more RCMP officers on the ground right now. There's only about 150 or less that are SPS officers. We have a full complement of about 843, something like that. And so it's still the lion's share of officers that are deployed in Surrey are RCMP. So it's about bringing that complement back up and, and we can do that. Absolutely. Do you think the city can afford to hire more officers though, to get above and beyond that 843? Because it seems to me that's about as many police officers Surrey has had for the last four or five years. Simi, that is absolutely true. We have never increased our policing complement and that is, that is entirely on Doug McCallum and his slate. We were supposed to increase that complement in 2018 when we were first elected, and he stopped that. At the same time, Surrey has probably increased by about 55,000 people. So, you know, when you do that, do the math, Surrey is underpoliced for sure. We, um, our slate has budgeted, unlike um, some of the others, we have budgeted to increase the policing complement in Surrey over the next four years by 100 people. And so we will continue to do that and continue to lean on the RCMP um, to uh, help us increase those numbers. So when you say you've budgeted for that, then what kind of an increase could Surrey residents expect to pay for that? Uh, we, we will not be increasing the budget for that. That's in the budget that we already have. Our growth 
in Surrey uh, gives us that kind of additional um, increase in our in our municipal budget to be able to accommodate those uh, police officers. We will also be um, increasing our fire complement. Do you think there's a, d- a different way for Surrey to be policed? Like, clearly, there's a lot of crime and public safety issues that people are concerned about in Surrey. You know, the gang situation, shootings, property crime. What needs to change in terms of how Surrey is policed? You know, I, I've uh, had these discussions with uh, officers many times. The one thing that we really do need to do in Surrey, there's a couple of things. We have to get more serious about the prevention part. So we have to, and that's on the city. We have to build more sports fields and ice arenas and things that can assist them with the prevention side. And that's something the city has to get very active and involved in. And we haven't done a good job. And if you look at our um, our infrastructure in Surrey, we are below um, below the standards on every level, on ice arenas, on swimming pools, you name it, sports fields, uh, the arts, uh, all those things that you can get uh, youth and children involved in. So we have to do that. We have to increase how we're dealing with police mental health outreach team and, and the complement there. We have that's on us. We have to talk more uh, bilaterally with uh, the federal government to help us with the some of the programs that they have that will help supplement um, policing in our city as well. So, on a final note, then for all the listeners out there who live in Surrey and will be voting in this election, why should they vote for you? They should vote for uh, myself and the Safe Surrey or sorry, myself and the Surrey Connect team, because we are going to bring honest, ethical and fair uh, government back to Surrey. We've been missing that for the last four years. And for sure, we will make sure that everything is cost effective and not um, not a runaway train of empty election promises, because that's what we've been seeing out of the other camps. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks, Simi. Bye now. Appreciate that. That's Brenda Locke, Surrey mayoral candidate for the party Surrey Connect, running for mayor. She is a current councillor, was a councillor for the last four years, and now running for mayor. Now, we are continuing this series this week from Surrey with our focus on public safety. As you heard there, lots of different approaches to how they would deal with this policing issue in Surrey RCMP versus Surrey Police Service. You know, each party seems to have a slightly different way of dealing with this situation. Tomorrow, we're going to be speaking with Ginny Sims on this topic, also running for mayor in Surrey. And then on Friday, we'll hear from Sukh Dhaliwal, um, vital mayoral candidate, before you go to the polls on Saturday. This is Mornings with Simi. What do you want your politicians to pledge to? What do you want them working on for the next 10 years? Well, Generation Squeeze has actually been thinking about this. They've launched something called the Generational Fairness Champion Pledge. We're going to find out all about it now with Dr. Paul Kershaw, who's a professor at the University of British Columbia's School of Population and Public Health and founder of Generation Squeeze. Thanks for being back with us. Thanks so much for having me back. So what is this all about? Well, I founded Generation Squeeze um, a decade ago, and over the years, we've taken on the childcare crisis and the housing crisis and the climate crisis and even the healthcare crisis. And lately, I've been jesting, it's like we're stockpiling crises like it's pandemic era toilet paper. And, you know, with Gen Squeeze, we really started to try and help people not just address the symptoms of a problem, but the root cause, the underlying disease. 
And I think more and more, you know, we're talking about systemic problems like classism and racism and sexism. But one thing we don't talk a lot about is how we have this dysfunctional generational system. Generational unfairness is quite pervasive. And so we're wanting to help our politicians more and more bring that generational fairness lens to their, pardon me, to their decision making. Okay, so how do they do that? What do you want them to do? Well, we want them to recognize a few things. First, that, you know, we need to be planning for all ages, investing in investing fairly for young and old alike. And that often is going to mean we're going to want to try and promote people's well-being where they're young so that we can prevent them from becoming sick later on. It's like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We also want us to say, like, we have to be protecting what's sacred for those who follow, like a healthy childhood, a healthy home, a stable planet. And there's this common common practice that's harmful that we really need to shine a light on. Like, We've been extracting so much wealth from our housing system in this region that we leave little affordability left over. Or we've been using so much of the atmosphere's scarce capacity to absorb carbon that now we leave extreme weather as our legacy for those who follow. And we're often actually, you know, unwilling to make investments through our government budgets that we then pay for fully. And so then leave large bills for our kids and grandchildren to take on down the road. That's a common intergenerational unfairness that's at the root of all these problems. And so we're saying, hey, let's let's slay that intergenerational systemic villain and start treating these these symptoms at the root cause. Okay, so how do they do this then? And what, what kind of commitment are they signing up for if they do this? Yeah, this is like mom and apple pie stuff. So we're, you know, investing fairly in young and old alike, preventing illness more than, um, you know, treating it, prioritizing housing for homes, investments, homes first, investments second. They put this pledge, this card to be a generational fairness champion on their social media channels and say that they're taking the pledge. And hopefully then that spurs other members of their caucus provincially and federally to do the same. And we'll have this groundswell of people who want to take what we just practiced, actually, over the Thanksgiving table so many of us celebrated at, where there is a lot of intergenerational love and solidarity. And what we're aiming for is to bring that solidarity between generations at our family tables into the world of politics. That is going to sound cheesy to many of your listeners right now, but I think (laughs) it's actually so darn important that we bring that love into the world of politics, which will help us think not just over an election cycle, but over a longer time period, because we're not doing that well right now. Yeah. How did you decide then? How did you, I guess, narrow down this list? I mean, there's a lot of issues out there. How did you decide what was most important? Well, we're, you know, Generation Squeeze is this cool, you know, think and change tank, or that's a nice way of saying a university community collaboration. And at the university and school of population and public health, we know that health doesn't start with medical care. It starts where we're born, grow, live, work, and age. And right now for the generation raising young kids, those conditions are eroding. Um, You've heard me talk about the squeeze, that they go to school longer to land jobs that pay less, only to face way higher housing prices, uh, and then they get larger government environmental debts. Those things are just creaming the generation raising young kids. Stress is then one of the the outcomes that happens, and the stress is sort of the biological response by which a harmful environment gets under our skin and our scalp, making us more likely to be ill. And so the research is pointing us in these five areas, and it's saying as we worry about racism and colonialism and sexism, these are critical things, but we need to also have this age lens. Because I think when people hear the term like ageism, you'll often think, oh, this is a, a risk for an older demographic where, you know, when we're biologically frail, when we're older, that, you know, we become vulnerable and ageism is a problem. And it is. But what we know from the evidence is that socioeconomically, vulnerability is switched from older to younger people. Younger people have the highest rates of poverty. They don't have the wealth. 
older folks have the lowest rates of poverty ahead a lot of the wealth. And so we need to be thinking about how our, 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 our relations between older and younger and future generations is a bit out of whack in the way that public policy is currently working. Okay, so that's what you mean by when you say we want to work towards generational fairness. Yeah, generational fairness is the idea that we're going to plan for all ages. We're going to do all we can not to leave uh, bills for those who fall in our footsteps when we could have paid for them now. And we're going to protect what is sacred, like a healthy planet, childhood and home. So do you think that we don't plan for all ages? No, we don't. We are much more likely right now to plan for later in our lives. That's not unimportant. We're talking about my mom. But in Canada, we've increased spending per person over 65 four times faster over the last several decades than when investing in the generation raising young kids. And we uh, tend to say, let's treat our illness after people fall sick rather than prevent people from falling sick in the first place by investing in their well-being when they're young. And if we cared about all ages, we would have slowed down home prices years ago. We would have been paying for our pollution much more readily years ago. We don't plan for all ages. And that's a hard truth that I don't want to piss your listeners off in the morning. But that's the hard truth that we need more and more to wrestle with. So where would we start? Where, where would any politician start? Start by taking the pledge, because the pledge is the mom and the apple pie. Who can disagree with that? Who disagrees with being a supporter of fairness between the generations? Then, you know, often the devil's in the details with policy design. But as we say in our pledge, you know, first off, gov- no, no provincial or federal government right now is doing a good job monitoring how it's spending its mending on young and old people. Like, let's just start monitoring it so we can ask ourselves, are we striking the right balance? No one's even monitoring, like, how much do we do for medical care compared to, like, investing in what actually makes us well? We need to report that and then say, are we striking the right balance? Those would be some early steps. And then, you know, that'll take us down the road to restoring housing affordability, making sure all Canadians can benefit from keeping our climate not warming up faster than a degree and a half, which is I know, crazy warm right now. We love the sunshine in October, but it's a frightening drought. And um, it really is a problem when we, re- when we run deficits, even when we're not in a recession. And that's becoming more and more the norm where our politicians are, you know, cha- you know, calling for us to vote for them by promising they'll spend more on us, but not asking us to think about how we're really going to pay for it. All right. So is this like for any politician, any level of government? Well, I wouldn't say no if municipal politicians wanted to take the pledge, but to be honest, the pledge is disproportionately focusing on federal and provincial uh, political leaders because that's where we're collecting over 90% of our tax dollars in this country. And we really need our senior levels of government to to take the pledge, to have that gen fairness lens on. But right now, we know we're in municipal elections. People are you know, calling for them to calling for us to vote for them in the upcoming elections on Saturday. So if they want to take the pledge too as a candidate, more power to them. <laughs> All right. Where can people find out more? At jensqueeze.ca. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Have a great day. That's Dr. Paul Kershaw, professor at the University of British Columbia and founder of Generation Squeeze.